This episode of the Paddock Pass podcast is brought to you by Renthal Street Components. Over 800 street fitments for handbars, bar mounts, clip-ons, brake pads, chains, and sprockets. G'day, Paddock Pass podcast number 365 and coming to you from another world split. My name is Adam Wheeler and I'm currently in a hotel in Melbourne waiting to fly home. While my fellow wind-battered friend and colleague Neil Morrison is also in the city, but I in the trip to Thailand, and my other mate and erstwhile writer, the clock-ravaged David Emmett, is indulging in some caffeine abuse because he's currently the other end of the clock. We're here to talk about the Guru by Griffin Australian Grand Prix, where the natives took the whole down-under, upside-down concept totally to heart for the 27th running of the GP, and the epically brilliant but also brilliantly exposed Phillip Island. Saturday races, weather reversals, fried soft tyres, frozen Turkish balls, fashionable white gloves and much more coming up. Neil can certainly cope with any subject that's fried. Uh, Trust me, I saw him eat two portions of Chinese food over the weekend that would supply a small oriental family for a month. And Dave could be our best consultant for themes of fashion, but I certainly won't be trying to make too much of balls up here. On that spherical note, what are our grades for this unstable round 16 of 20, gentlemen? I'm going to give it a, a six out of a ten um, because I'm going to give it uh, about a ooh, I don't know about an eight out of ten for the Grand Prix that happened on Saturday, and I'm going to give it a four out of ten for um, holding the race in October, which is a terrible idea, as we found out on Sunday. I'll give it a seven out of ten because I think it was a, it was a pretty decent Grand Prix considering the situations. Considering we had uh, horrible forecasting for Sunday, I think it was the absolutely right decision to move the race to Saturday. We got a great race on Saturday as well, um, and uh, I fully went to the track on Sunday expecting nothing to happen, and we ended up getting a race and a half. Um, so, generally speaking, I think. Um, it was the the kind of the best of a bad situation um, when you looked at the the terrible forecast for Sunday, um, and um, it's it's Phillip Island, isn't it? So just being there, even when you're getting battered in the face by uh, thirty miles an hour winds, uh, is is still a is still a pleasure. For me, I'm going to go nine for the location, five for the timing, four for the weather. <laughs> And eight for the race, even though I did almost nod off at one point, but by the third, the last three laps, um, I was fully awake. So I have no idea what the average of that is. Um, yeah, the, the race is always interesting in Phillip Island because like, I, I watched it this morning again with, uh, with my wife in bed and, um, uh, like the first five laps are really exciting. And then there's about 17 laps where nothing much happens. And then the last five laps, it gets really, really exciting as well. So you, uh, because the last five laps were great, you're left with the impression that it was a much more exciting race than you thought. Did the earth move in the last three laps, Dave? Uh, well, the bed did. I had to keep on sort of putting the, uh, moving the iPad around. <laughs> Well, listen, a reminder of the headlines from Phillip Island. We had the Saturday race after swapping with the sprint. So the first Saturday Grand Prix since 2015 and when Valentino Rossi won the Dutch TT and then flew straight to the um, Festival Speed, if I'm not mistaken, in the UK. And Joe Anzarco's first win, finally, after seven years in the MotoGP class. And we all kind of thought it would never happen, but it did. I didn't. Neil thought it was going to happen. I didn't. Uh, Maya culpa, Maya culpa, Maya maxima culpa. Um, uh, and he earned it. You know, Joanne Zarco absolutely 100% earned this, uh, uh, earned it. He just rode brilliantly. Um, he, it's it, because what he's good at is, is 
managing his tires. And that I think is why, uh, you know, because you always see him coming on late when he, cause he's still got a tire left when everyone else has used it up. Um, and he did that to perfection. So, you know, hats off to him. Um, and do we think it's going to be another 120 uh, races before he wins his next one? I had nothing about against him winning a Grand Prix. I just thought it was kind of amusing how, how so many attempts had come close and it hadn't happened. It's almost a little bit like the Aaron Connett situation in Moto2. It's, um, it, I, there's something mildly amusing in the depths of human suffering. Um, I, I don't know. Maybe that's a little twisted. Uh, well, maybe, maybe it's the gimmick thing because, you know, uh, Aaron Connett had his, uh, uh, had his bow tie and Joanne Zarco had his backflip. Uh, technically not a backflip. I was told by one of the people on my website, uh, it's a back somersault because he doesn't use his hands. Um, but, but, but perhaps the, the, the key to winning a MotoGP race is not to have a gimmick. Or not because he actually won a race. <laughs> We also had Jorge Martin's gamble, um, Peco's perseverance and uh, championship lead. We'll get onto that in a moment. Digia's moment of truth, uh, Honda's woes, yet more. Dennis Onchu's third win this season and uh, the Moto3 title chase is probably the closest and the most interesting, you'd have to argue. Uh, well, there's a case for it, certainly amongst the categories. Um, Pedro Acosta's salvage operation in Moto2 as the class again suffered with another reduced race distance. Um, on that note, let's come to the moments. Dave, what was the, your moment from the Grand Prix? I mean, my moment for the, for, from the Grand Prix was uh, the final corner Um uh, the what was it? Uh, Digia and Zarco and Banyaya had already passed uh, Jorge Martin. Um, his tyres were gone. Martin entered the final corner ahead of um, uh, Brad Binder, and on the exit of the because there's a reasonable run to the line there. But just on the exit, um, you could see that Martin was you know sort of trying to accelerate, but Binder just sort of totally blew past him i mean it it was it was reminiscent of casey stoner in 2007 coming onto the straight at qatar it was that kind of insane speed and it was just a sign that of how um jorge martin had no tires left at all in that last lap neil what was your uh pickable moment well it uh, it almost explains itself. It was the the moment that Johan Sarko parked his bike at the outside of Siberia on his uh, celebration lap, climbed the tire wall, uh, sort of did a little bit of to and fro with the fans, and then performed the backflip for the first time since Valencia 2016, his first win in 2,533 days, I believe. Um, and um, yeah, it was just a remarkable sort of uh, moment that um, that captured. Um, the, the kind of strangeness of the race. I don't think anyone watching would have um, would have predicted that Zarco was going to be the victor in that encounter through practice or through qualifying. I think he was as low as eight on the first lap, and as Martin skirted away early doors, I think Zarco was one of the last people you would have predicted uh, coming through in the end. Um, but sensational performance, managed to keep his head in the last lap when uh, he finally found himself in front coming out of turn four and Pekka was breathing down his neck and uh, yeah, um, probably produced the most iconic victory celebration I think in, in MotoGP history, Dave. <laughs> Are you trying not to smile too much, uh, Neil, when you say that? I mean, it wasn't even a good backflip by his own admission. It's a good celebration. 
Yeah, but he hadn't done his backflip for seven years. So, uh, I mean, considering the length of period uh, time since the last backflip, then um, it was it was quite uh, it was quite reasonable. Yeah, and try and you try and do one with uh, fully kitted up with leathers and uh, riding boots and a uh, helmet. He's thirty three years old. I was worried for his knees. <laughs> <laughs> That's a very good point. I mean, you know, that fantastic overtaking move, I think, through seven and eight, that was that was a peach as well. I mean, you could have picked that moment. I mean, that's, you know, a little bit more creditable. So if you want to as a symbolic reference of his fine victory. Uh, I mean, I think I would uh, I would pick him singing them, uh, uh, singing La Marseillaise on the um, uh, uh, on the podium because I, uh, from what I understand, he couldn't hear the theme tune. You know, like he, he didn't know what was going on, so he just had to sort of go along with it. But um, yeah, they played it, I think, uh, uh, in the paddock, but they didn't play it or they didn't broadcast it out around where the podium was, I believe. So uh, um, yeah, he had to sort of fill it in a little bit and. Uh, make up for the lack of uh, noise around the podium. <laughs> yeah, yeah, exactly. It's cracking. It's cracking song, though. Aux armes les citoyens. I mean, you know, that's the sort of stuff that you want. Well, we haven't heard it for a while. It's since Saxon Ring last year uh, in the MotoGP podium. So it's been, been a good long time. For me, I think it was also Jorge Martin related. I just thought the onboard camera shot, Neil, I said this on our Paddock Note show, um, when we saw Hoy kind of almost shake his head. I think three riders went past him into turn four, Miller Corner, on that last lap. And it was just the a gesture of resignation that that bold, soft tyre choice really had gone. I mean, it created a fantastic last sort of three minutes of the Grand Prix where you were really thinking, will they, will they, will they uh, catch Jorge Martin? And they did him on the last lap. And, uh, you know, we've seen... Martin bounced some brilliance, you know, and sublime kind of performances this year to just sort of bizarre moments of um, kind of indecision or strange tactics. And it was just another thing where his media debrief afterwards, he admitted it was a gamble because he deviated from the rest of the pack. Everyone else was fitting medium tires and he didn't and ultimately it lost. So, uh, yeah, I just thought that little head shake, you know, was um, a very transparent admission that he kind of got it wrong. Yeah, I mean, like, I don't think he did go, get it wrong choosing the soft tyre. Uh, I had a phone to Peter Bomb earlier today and we were talking about this. And Peter, I mean, apart from the fact that he finished fifth? Apart from the fact, well, no, I mean, the reason he finished fifth is not because he chose the soft tyre. The reason he, uh, uh, Peter Bomb pointed out to me, the reason he finished fifth is because he did a 128 on his, what was it, his third lap or something. And he has, there's, there's, there was no, he had no business doing a 128. There was no need to do a 128. What is it? 128 eight, I think. A uh, new lap record. It could have done a 120, uh, 129.1, one, uh, pulled out a gap of two seconds instead of three and a half seconds. Um, and he would have had enough tire left because he, you know, he, he came, in re, you know, realistically, he, um, he was leading, easily leading for 26 laps. And it was just the last lap that, um, that, that he really lost it. And if he'd been just that little bit more gentle with his tires in that first lap, if he'd have done like a 20, you know, a low 29 instead of a high 28, uh, that, that would have given it, given him another like three or four tenths on that last lap and three or four tenths on that last lap is the difference between winning and uh, finishing fifth. 
yeah, when you look at the fastest laps of each riders in the race, I think Martin's fastest lap was uh, nearly four tenths of a second quicker than Brad Binder's fastest lap, and he set the second, or he was the second fastest rider in the race. Um, you know, Martin, that's a, a kind of a similar level to the dominance that he showed in uh, qualifying when he was uh, nearly half a second clear of, of Binder again. Um, and yeah, I think uh, I think Dave's right. It was it was puzzling to to do this because when you get to the stage of the season and you are locked in a title fight pretty clearly with one other rider the, the, the sort of the, the clever thinking is to not do anything a little bit too left field um, and pretty much don't go against the grain because it can really come back and bite you um, and especially considering I think Michelin had told Simon Crafer right the way through the weekend that there was not really any information uh, about the soft rear after 20 laps um, the common consensus was from Michelin that it was going to be a bit of a nightmare in those last three four laps um, it, it it definitely was something of a risk and you just had to ask some of the other riders um, you know MotoGP riders on, on Saturday evening uh, especially some of the other Ducati men like uh, Luca Marini, I asked him if he had ever considered this soft, and he just said, like, "No, it's a completely insane choice to it's do that." Crazy, yeah. yeah. He said that he saw um, it on the screen. I think before he um, before he took off, that Martin had selected the soft, and he was like, "That that has to be a mistake. There's no way because most of the guys were struggling to get the medium to last until the end of the race, so they just thought there's absolutely no chance in hell that they can do that." Um, so yeah, I think the selection. You could maybe uh, you could maybe criticize that. You could also maybe criticize Jorge's riding a little bit at the start, just going a little bit too uh, too mad at the start of the race and, and trying to build up that lead. It was clearly his strategy to try and build up as big a lead as possible. But we've seen so many times in the past that there are a few tracks uh, like Phillip Island that when the rear tire does go off, you struggle as badly. You know, it's not like you're going to be losing a couple of tenths of a second. You're going to be losing seconds, um, and especially when. You know, Dave referenced Brad Binder passing Jorge coming out of the final turn. Just before that, coming out of turn 11, you could see Martin was pretty much trying to do everything he could to get the bike off the edge of the tyre. He was basically sat up almost on the inside of the track, accelerating towards the uh, the edge of it, just trying to get it on the middle part of the tyre. I mean, um, yeah, he, he knew at that point that he was completely done. And um, uh, you have to say that this is the second weekend in succession that he has had the match point. He's had the winning motorcycle and he's had everything within his power to win the race comfortably and he's contrived to lose it the the next place that we're going to see something like this is qatar because qatar is another one of those tracks they've resurfaced qatar it's always quite abrasive the track uh, and we saw with the f1 race that they had really serious tire troubles there so this is that i think is the next time uh, and qatar is going to be really interesting because it might be that might be the last battle for the championship before we actually get to Valencia. You know, that's that's the sort of thing that's going to be a decider. So that that one is, you're going to see exactly the same, that someone's going to try and get away. Uh, they're going to end up burning up their tyres and then running out. Just another thing, a lot of the riders were also pointing out that um, Martin was the fastest guy on the medium rear tyre through practice as well. And Martin said that, Basically, the reason he didn't go for that was because he hadn't done longer runs on it. He hadn't done longer stints. He wasn't too sure about how good it would have been. And he didn't feel as comfortable being maybe fighting in the pack with the other guys. He wanted to have some space out front. But I think it was Mark Marquez that was saying, you know, soft or medium, he was he was the fastest guy. So why take that risk? Um, and yeah, maybe that's just something that the team got a little bit wrong over the weekend, not trying to put more laps on the medium when 
this is a you know such a, a notorious track for for tire consumption. Jorge Martin sat down in his media debrief um, on Saturday and had a kind of well, oh well, kind of aspect about him. You know, there was a bit of a you know a sheepish smile that he had a go, but he admitted that for the rest of the season and being this closely implicated in the title fight, he can't really afford to make that sort of gamble or make that call again. Um, you know, which I thought was quite transparent and quite honest of him and that sort of brings us on to one of our four sort of talking points in this podcast Neil that you know you believe that the title fight I mean Pekka Bagnaya was brilliant in Phillip Island we've seen him have a slightly strange or unorthodox working method throughout this season where he has been playing the long game right the way from Friday um, and FP1 looking to use different tire setups looking to experiment slightly with the setup of the of the Ducati the GP23 with a, a pure view on the long race distance. I mean, he's been prolific also in the sprints, but, you know, I think Bagnaia and his, and his whole crew have really been taking a 360 approach to the Grand Prix um, rather than just, like, knocking out sessions. Um, pretty much the opposite to what Jorge Martin's been doing, where he's been almost having a little bit more of a short-term strategy. And it seems to be paying off because Bagnaia's gone from, what, been 66 points ahead losing briefly the championship lead and now he's sort of back in control just by having um i mean to illustrate what i'm saying he worked principally with the medium tire all the way through from sort of the first sessions in philip island and that was the key point in then having to or having to nurse that tire was was key for him getting on the podium yeah yeah it was um it was another weekend where you know banyaya thought rode really really well really intelligently um kind of like a, a world champion in some respects and i feel this kind of stage of the season here um, that we're in this run of races Indonesia and Phillip Island feels a little bit like um, the kind of Thailand Phillip Island Malaysia run that we had last year when Banyai pretty much did enough to uh, come back from uh, you know the deficit behind Fabio Quattararo and get a sort of decisive advantage that he could take into Valencia and then defend um, yeah very different approaches as you say I'd, I mean Martin you have to say Martin was just fantastic at Phillip Island to watch like his first session, uh, what, five days on from his crash in Indonesia. And he went out and put seven tenths of a second into the rest of the group into uh, in, in FP1. And it was just like, okay, wow, this guy I think is trying to say that, you know, I'm back and my, my confidence hasn't been dented. Um, and But, you know, Banyaya just kept on working sort of diligently and did a lot of laps on the medium rear tyre throughout Friday. Um, you know, a little blemish on his weekend was the fact that he didn't manage to um, to get into Q2 automatically on Friday afternoon. Maybe left his uh, kind of late um, time attack and, uh, too late and by that stage, you know, Martin was on track time to mess up with him uh, Mar uh, Marquez was on track as well but he kind of got through qualifying with the minimum of fuss and uh, qualified third and then you have to say it must have been so difficult for him in those early laps to see Martin steaming ahead as he was and he was getting I was sort of writing my race report last night and he was getting beaten up quite a bit early doors you know there was uh, I think it was around lap five lap six Digia had come past him which was I'm sure a surprise um, then he had uh, Zarco biting at his heels Marquez at one point was biting at his heels and uh, Martin was three four seconds up the road um so to ride, to, to to basically have the conviction that your strategy is correct in those kind of situations when you can see your principal rival clearing off ahead and a lot of other guys biting at your heels just behind, it would be very easy to kind of panic and deviate from your strategy. But he was absolutely sure that running a certain pace 
would pay off in the end. And I mean, he almost won the race. Um, he was just a, a handful of tenths back of his arco. It was a great opportune moment to, um, to, to kind of nab second at turn four when Zarco had just passed Jorge Martin as well. Um, and he's just doing those those kind of performances where he needs to do exactly what he needs to do to get that championship lead up each race weekend. Um, so yeah, very, very impressive, I thought. A very impressive weekend from Peko and a second very impressive weekend on the, on the bounce. Yeah, the, the interesting thing about it is the contrast between Martin and uh and banyaya the, the, their 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 characteristic you know their characters uh, banyaya is really sort of you know he's quiet and thoughtful and very very patient and martin is much more sort of exuberant and hyper and impulsive yeah really impulsive and you know like he rode an incredibly impulsive race um and he ended up losing and I mean, I've talked about the importance of patience in racing a lot. Being patient is so important and so difficult because, you know, you're riding a motorbike at 350 kilometers an hour and, and the adrenaline is actually streaming, uh, steaming through your veins. Um, but it was such an incredibly patient, uh, uh, incredibly patient race. And Brad Binder made a really interesting point as well, which was, um, with the wind, because I think on Saturday the wind was starting to pick up and it was starting to suck the temperature out of the front tyre a little bit. Uh, and riding behind people actually made it a little bit easier because it brought the temperature of the tyre up. So it gave you that little bit more grip, um, which you were losing when you were riding out front on your own. Yeah, Brad said that he actually thought his front tyre was graining um, because he was having so many big moments through turns 11 and 12 um, that he thought he was having severe issues with the front tyre and he said he's losing a lot of confidence. Then Di Gian Antonio came past him. He said within one lap, the tyre temperature rose back up to kind of proper working level and uh, suddenly he said it was like, wow, this this tyre feels brand new again. Suddenly his confidence came back and that gave him his second win to then go and try and attack in, in the closing lap. So... How many times this year have we said uh, it's very detrimental to be in the slipstream of a rider in MotoGP in you know the current state it, that it is in? Um, but Phillip Island was the exception. To drag things back onto the title fight, um, Dave, who, who are you leaning more towards here? Because we had a little bit of Ducati versus Ducati last year, but it was principally Peko Bagnaia fighting Fabio Quartararo for the crown. Now we've got Jorge Martin in, on a factory bike on a factory contract in a satellite team going against the Italian world champion in the Italian factory team. And, you know, the points gap is kind of fluctuating either way, depending on the Grand Prix. We have the Chang International Circuit, Sepang International Circuit, LaSalle Circuit, the Ricardo Tomo Circuit left on the calendar. I just wondered, you know, if you had to sort of put your money on a rider now based on what you've seen, who would you be leaning towards? I mean, I, I, would, I would put my money on... Pekka Banyaya because I think Martin is faster, um, possibly more talented. It's really hard to say. But Banyaya is just more intelligent. Banyaya is, has, has the patience. Martin is, he also has the advantage of having a championship already. He, he's already won a title. Um, and because he's already won a title, he doesn't need to win another title. He knows how to do it. He knows that it, that it, uh, that it will come. He, he knows he can do it. Martin is like looking at this like, okay, right. I've got a chance. I have to do it. And that sort of that 
that pressure added with his own sort of hype sense of you know hyperactivity, I think it, it means that he's prone to mistakes. Neil, what about you? Um, I mean, my personal opinion is I think this year Jorge Martin has risen to the point of being a championship contender. Every race he's doing now uh, with the spotlight he has is a learning experience and it's going to bear him in good stead for 2024. I don't think he's quite yet, doesn't quite have the mentality or like, you know, like Bang Naya, the larger scope to, to administer a championship campaign. But um, he's certainly going to be in it right up into the mix, as Dave says, because of his speed. But, I mean, do you have a similar opinion or maybe something slightly alternative? Yeah, I think it's very difficult to call, to be honest, Dad. Um, I mean, we have to also consider that Banya is in his fifth year. Martin's just in his third in MotoGP. That obviously makes a bit of a difference. Um, as Dave said, you know, Peko has the crown. He has an experience of being in this stage of the season last year. Um, but the fact that Martin is just so fast, um, you know, that really does count for something and, and all it needs is for him to just click and to, <laughs> you know not make a mistake and uh, I think that um, he could be right back into it so um, if I had to really put money on it I would say probably Banyaya but I really think Martin's going to make a, a proper fist of it um, and you know Philip Allen he was so fast like it was just kind of ludicrous and reminds me a little tiny bit of, um, of the 2015 title fight 2015 mention we have to get it in um but <laughs> sort of banya is is kind of rossi and 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 martin is maybe the, the the lorenzo where it clearly lorenzo was faster that year but one or two circumstances just kept him to coming up on the sunday to contrive um against him so maybe that's not the best comparison but i do feel that um yeah Martin does have that kind of self-belief and confidence that he's just going to keep bouncing back from mistakes and, and results that go against him. Uh, the, the other thing to remember is there are, I mean, there's 27 points separating them. There are 148 points left. That's a lot of points. And uh, Martin still has it in his own hand. He doesn't need help from anyone else at the moment. If he wins, you know, all the rest of the sprints and the rest of the, uh, and the rest of the Grand Prix, then he is champion no matter what Benyaya does. Um, which is still a point of hope. It gets different once you get to the point where another ride, you need help from someone else, then it starts getting a lot more difficult. Yeah, and it is probably just worth pointing out that he was 26 laps and three corners away from doing something that I think the entire grid would have been in utter disbelief at. Um, you know, it's so, so nearly paid off. And we're talking about fine margins in this championship. That race is one lap shorter. And we're talking about an absolute Martin masterclass. Yeah, it's a great call now. I mean, it will remain to be seen how different those points could be um, by the time we come to Valencia. There were some unusual podium faces um, in Australia. Um, Moto3, of course, we had Dennis Onchu ahead of uh, Ayumu Sasaki and Joel Kelso for the first time on the podium. And of course, in MotoGP, Johan Zarco sitting finally in the middle chair, but then we had um, Fabio Di Antonio in third place on the podium for the first time and pretty much at the kind of peak of a positive, decent run. Right at the time when, you know, there are still potentially two saddles to be sorted because whoever ends up in Repsol Honda is going to leave a space and you'd assume the Italian, I mean, he's put himself in a perfect position to be re-employed in MotoGP, isn't he? Because he's, and by, I don't think his claim in the, in the post-race press conference of, you know, needing enough time to be able to get to know and to be able to show what you can do in MotoGP is not too wild. I don't think that's, uh, 
too crazy or disillusioned. You know, you do need time to be able to get your head around the class. I mean, Bagnaya, um, for context, said he needed three and a half seasons to get his first win. So um, did you sort of a little bit on the path? I mean, Neil, you're kind of sort of half smiling at me. Um, we know some of us sort of, you know, don't rate him or don't particularly think he's much of a rider. But um, on, on the Ducati, he's taken a podium finish. And that's really, you know, the the bare minimum you have to do on that motorcycle. So he's earned his chops to a degree. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I ate a ton of humble pie on last week's pod. Do, does that mean I have to do it again this week? <laughs> <laughs> well, he's on the podium this time. No, it, it, it's my turn with uh, with Zarko, with my Zarko prediction. So you're all right. Okay, well, that makes, that, that, that makes sense, Dave. Thanks for letting me off the hook this time. But yeah, I mean, if you had told me even halfway through the season that Dijan Antonio would be finishing on the podium in a race like that at Phillip Island. I would have laughed at you. I would have told you that you needed to uh, go away and have a good, long, hard look at yourself in the mirror um, because I thought that just wasn't possible. I didn't think that he was, frankly, that good enough um, you know, to, to, to kind of post that kind of performance. There were times in the race where he had passed Banyaya and he was catching up to Brad Binder where I was just thinking he has to be annihilating his rear tyres to be doing this. Um, but Come the end of the race, he was he was right there and he was able to attack on Martin. He was just right behind Banyaya as well. So he had, you know, he managed his race really, really well. Um and yeah, it's a it's a great it is a great story. It's great to see um another guy up there at the front. Um frankly, he never did that much in Model Two, which which really impressed me, which really made me think that he's a top, top talent, a top rider. Um but uh, that was a superb ride. Um, and you have to just think that it's a, it's a really nice response to what has been going on recently to the fact that he has lost his ride. He is basically unemployed for next year. I liked his line whenever they were waiting to go onto the podium that, uh, you know, just as he's getting, finding his feet, they're kind of taking his baby away from him or his favorite toy away from him. Um, and, uh, yeah, I mean, I, I would have laughed at you even a week ago. I think, in fact, I did laugh at you a week ago for suggesting he should go to Repsol Honda. But I mean, after a ride like that, I'm thinking, well, you know what? There are there are worse options for sure. Yeah, the I mean, he was fourth last week, and last week the difference then I think was that he um, that he had a little bit of luck. You know, he was helped. There were riders crashing out in front of him. This one, um, yeah, I mean, I almost think he, you know, he had a real shot at being second uh, because of the way that he came through that sort of overtake with Martin, with Zarco and Banyaya. Um, I think he lost out a little bit there. Um, but uh, I think that, I mean, this one, he just rode the race. This was a, the same way as Zarco, you know, won that right, that won that race fair and square. Did, did you ended up on the podium fair and square? No one crashed out in front of him. No one made any mistakes. He wasn't benefiting uh, from it. There weren't any peculiar circumstances. The very, you know, the very worst you can say is, uh, Martin made a, you know, made a mistake with his tire choice. But, uh, you know, they, did you just rode a really, really good race? Just really solid. Um, is he going to be a world champion? No, I don't think he is going to be a world champion. Doesn't matter. You know, he is going to, he, he looks like he can score podiums. And I think, and Neil, you'll have to correct me if I'm wrong, that makes all eight, uh, uh, Ducatis on the podium so far this year. Yeah, all but one. Bastianini hasn't, um, but we could sort of excuse him for exceptional circumstances this year. Yeah, I mean, he, uh, yeah, exactly. But I mean, you know, like no one doubts that Bastianini is is capable of getting on the podium because he's, a, you know, he's already won races. 
I mean, I think as a stopgap for Repsol Honda, we know that there will have to be thumb in the checkbook for 2025, whether that's Fabio Quattararo, Pedro Acosta, or somebody else in the paddock. But they need somebody who can, you know, knows their way around a MotoGP bike and the circuits for 2024. And I don't think, you know, Digier is that bad an option of what's left you know, for them to pick. I mean, if they do manage to spend extra budget to sway somebody to break their contract, such as Miguel Oliveira, but then the Portuguese is unlikely to go for just one year, so that could potentially wreck their their contract cycle. So why not just employ the Italian and then, you know, you have uh, you have the matter solved because Digia doesn't have any other options. So why not just take a one year with a pretty decently paid role at Honda, you'd imagine? But what Honda really need is experience and uh, a good development rider. Um, I, I'm not sure that Didger is that. Um, you know, all he's he's only ever ridden a year old Ducati. Um, uh, obviously, uh, Oliveira has at least had sort of two bikes. Uh, it is a bit of a shame that Zarco isn't moving up because I think Zarco would have, uh, you know, would have had you know even more insights to be able to give for. Uh, Honda, but yeah, I mean, it, it, there should be a there should be a queue of riders wanting that Repsol Honda uh, a bike uh, queuing round the the block, and and the fact that there isn't is really uh, quite concerning. Well, listen, another big headline, of course, from this Grand Prix was just the frantic nature of it all. Um, as we mentioned, we had the Saturday uh, Grand Prix, the sprint was pegged for the Sunday, didn't happen. When we arrived to the circuit on Sunday morning, it was raining, it was cold. I mean, the cold, more than anything else, seemed just very sort of uh, prohibitive to me, you know, for, certainly for race, getting race tires up to spec. But the, the wind was building up um, by the time of the afternoon when, you know, the Grand Prix would have traditionally been set around that 2, 3 p.m. mark. It was pretty wild. Uh, the, the gust was really strong. I mean, the media center, it was rattling the roof. I, I failed to see how the, the event could have gone ahead. So... It was a case of the organisers getting the judgment fully spot on. But then, Dave, should we even be in this position? I mean, how many times now have we seen arguably the best racetrack on the calendar? Not not necessarily the best circuit, but certainly the best racetrack. Just fall victim to, you know, the seasonal, I don't know, weirdness of, of Phillip Island and, and southern Melbourne. Yeah, well, I mean, like, I, I listened uh, and listened to and enjoyed your um, uh, note show on Sunday. Uh, they're the saying you almost felt sorry for the Australian Grand Prix Corporation. I do not feel sorry for them at all because it's their choice to put it in October because they don't want it anywhere near the F1 race. Um, you know, the F1 race is in March in Melbourne. Um, the, the problem is that, um, you know, Qatar has got a contract for the first race. If we want good weather, we need to go in February, basically. Uh, March is already getting a little bit less predictable, but, you know, February would be, end of February would be perfect. Uh, when World Superbike goes, I mean, like ideally what we'd have is, um, uh, World Superbikes, uh, World Superbikes one week, you know, World Superbike test, World Superbike race, MotoGP race. That'd be ideal as the, as the season start. Um, Steve English is already slagging you off, Dave, listening to this. <laughs> almost certainly, almost certainly. But I mean, like having the whole thing, I think, I think you'd get more, you'd get a bigger crowd as well. Because people had come down for uh, super bikes and stay for the week, you know that would be. Uh, I, I think that would be great. 
Um, but you know, Qatar has got the contract for the first uh, for the first race. Qatar wants to be a night race, and so you can't really start. You can't really hold a night race in February uh, because you start getting into trouble with the dew point. There's the uh, the cost of freight from Qatar to Australia, and then from Australia across to the US. Uh, which would be prohibitively um, expensive. Um, th- there's just too many logistical uh, logistical problems. Also, the, set- the testing, you know, we've got two pre-season tests and it's hard to fit in two pre-season tests. If you have a testing moratorium in December and January, it's really difficult to fit in two pre-season tests uh, in the space of basically, you know, two weeks before uh, you want to be uh, going racing in Phillip Island. We see the Formula One calendar getting more and more wild. Uh, you know, they're having these kind of synthetic races in Las Vegas and Miami and whatever else. I think the only real hope for MotoGP and Phillip Island switching schedules is that F1 starts to, I don't know, embrace more money or more themes from the likes of the Middle East. Um, you know, and maybe the Melbourne Grand Prix gets shuffled a little bit further into the calendar. That sort of timing could free up some possibilities for MotoGP to move to another point in the year. I mean, I've never been to Phillip Island in any other time season apart from when the Grand Prix is on. So um, I'm very misinformed as to when when will be a reliable stretch for the weather there. But um, like you say, Dave, if it does have to be in March, then you have to do some some quite comprehensive calendar gymnastics to make it work. But then maybe it's worth it because it's such a fantastic showcase for the merits of motorcycle racing. Um, I really think for maybe a, a, a renewed contract extension, say another three-year stretch, the next time Dorna put pen to paper, try try and do something where you make this event a real flagship because you'll win with the TV package, you'll win with the enthusiasm of the Australian fans because 20,000 of them still came out on Sunday wrapped up in plastic and rain max. It was really impressive. Um, full credit as well to Rebel Katie and Jack Miller who spent at least an hour at the, uh, on the side of the circuit there when everyone had gone just signing autographs and talking to people that remained so the event has a lot going for it and I think you just need to try and do something to make it a little bit more less prone to the elements yeah but I mean it's you know the, the, there's only 40 or 50,000 people on a really good turnout at Phillip Island it's 50,000 um and it's really difficult to pay dawn a lot of money in the end the calendar comes down to uh money uh, money and logistics um and also the climate there are certain period, uh, periods of time where you can and can't hold races in certain parts of the world um uh, but it you know like in the end it comes down to money we can't it's difficult for philippines to be later because uh, Sepang has got the has, has got the contract to be the penultimate race, so th- there's there's lots and lots of um, complications, and again, it's all about money. The guys wanted me to jump in just to be able to give my thoughts on the calendar and the placement for Phillip Island. As expected, Adam's dead right whenever he says that I was immediately cursing Dave and his suggestion of a calendar change. Basically, the way the calendar is formed, it's always very complicated because Dorna has to work in collaboration with Formula One and a lot of other championships to be able to see how the calendar can be formed to give them the best chance of everyone having successful events. 
And then for Australia, it's always interesting that it's the same organizing group for F1 World Superbikes and MotoGP. So the Australian Grand Prix Corporation have all of their major events and they like to have it where their two big events are bookended either end of the year. So you've got Formula One in March and MotoGP in October. World Superbikes is a good draw, but it's not MotoGP. So having us compete with Formula One is a good way for the state of Victoria to get bike and car fans to come to the region at the end of the summer. If you were to put MotoGP up against F1, maybe it wouldn't be as easy to sell that. Personally, for me, I find it really interesting that we started this year back in Phillip Island after ending last year's campaign there. It was it was like going to two totally different places. The weather was awful last year. It was very similar to last weekend for MotoGP. We had wet sessions. We had high winds. I remember turning the heating up in the apartment every day and it was nowhere near enough to keep you warm. So... For us last year, coming straight from Indonesia, there was also a lot of people sick in the paddock with colds, flus and different things. Every year, one of the big reasons that everyone loves working on World Superbikes is having the season opener in Australia. Because we have a two-day test, a day off, and then we're into the race weekend. The weather's always amazing. There's a good buzz around town, even though World Superbikes isn't as busy as it is for MotoGP. It's just a special time of year to go to Phillip Island because when the weather's like that, it creates great racing. You've got stable track conditions all the way through a weekend the tires you have to manage them so it keeps the pack nice and close just because the asphalt is so hot and we've generally had great racing whenever we've been there at that time of year it was very different last year because of the wet weather in terms of the overall motorsport calendar since melbourne became the host for the australian grand prix it's traditionally been the season opener for formula one but that's also changed in recent years for one reason or another. The biggest reason for this is that with Formula One putting preseason testing on in Bahrain and making it a televised event, it's almost like what uh, Grand Prix Zero used to be for MotoGP. It's meant that they've been able to twin Bahrain as the preseason testing venue and then also the opening race of the year. It makes more sense to do it this way rather than testing and then ship everything to Australia and move around that region. So that's the, the primary reason to put the opening race of the year in Bahrain. The other reason as well is, like David says, it's money. People in the Middle East will pay more money to be able to host a race. That's the prestige races of the year. So the opening race of the year, the final race of the year and different things. It's similar to how Qatar is usually our opening race of the year in MotoGP just because they pay a premium for it. Okay, well, that's uh, it's good to hear from Steve also what he thinks about, um, you know, Superbike, Phillip Island and uh, one of the most iconic tracks on the Grand Prix calendar. Let's see what will happen in 2024. And um, Mike Webb um, from Race Direction came and spoke to us, Neil, on Sunday, uh, a little explaining a little bit the, the process and the thinking behind the alteration, not only of the, the, the itinerary throughout the weekend, but also the decision on Sunday, um, which was really cool. You know, I think if Mike and Dorna and Race Direction could have, you know, that kind of dialogue with us in the future, then it might sort of cure some of the question marks or some of the, the you know, the, the scrutiny that MotoGP comes under unnecessarily um, in the future. But, uh, you know, it basically was down to the strong wind. Um, the riders could have ridden in the rain. That's why in the media debriefs on Sunday, some of them were saying, you know, we wanted to try. We could have given, done a couple of sighting laps in the conditions and had a go at it. Uh, and, you know, of course, Moto3 ran the full 21 laps in really tough conditions. Full credit to Dennis Onshu there making a Yuma Sasaki looking very fragile again on the last lap. But Sasaki, I think, is playing the championship pitcher and did really well 
just to bring the gap down to four points to Jaume Masia. So um, Moto3 is warming up quite nicely, even though it raced in Arctic conditions. But uh, yeah, just a word on Mike Webb, uh, Neil. I mean, also he was talking about some other subjects, wasn't he? A little bit how they deal with the riders, um, the role of the safety commission. Um, there was some good material in sort of the 10 minutes he dedicated to us. There was indeed, yeah. yeah it's always uh, interesting to hear what Mike has to say um, when we are able to speak with him because they has been a bit of a protective wall put around uh, him in recent years. Dave and I used to have the, the good pleasure of being able to go and speak to him more or less after every race, and uh, it was always enlightening. Um, but yeah, he was just saying that um, you know the Model Two race did look look pretty bad. In that we had, I think, ten riders crashing out, include and also Acosta crashed out on the sighting lap. So I think eleven men crashed overall. Um, he said the majority of those were just more to do with. Um, the tires and the temperature, um, you know, Dunlop's wet tires, really not the most ideal, I think, rubber that you want to be using when the temperatures are that cold. Um, because Dunlop have to basically design wet tires they can take to every circuit that will work in track temperatures of 40 degrees at Sepang or in Bururam. And then also in kind of cooler temperatures that we get at Phillip Island and Le Mans. So they have to have a really, really, really wide range. But I think yesterday it was just, it was too cold. It was too difficult to put um, to put heat into them. Um, so he was explaining that you know uh, it wasn't until I think Celestino Vietti crashed at the end of um, of the Model Two race. Well, the ninth lap of the Model Two race. I don't know if you've seen the video. Insane footage of him being blown basically off the track at Turn One. Uh, miraculous that he was able to get up from that. Um, that was the kind of the moment where they thought, okay, right, we really need to put the red flag out. And then they said afterwards, basically the conditions didn't improve from there. So there were some riders that were pushing to pushing to race. I think Maverick Rinales wanted to go out and do a siding lap or two to understand what was going on. I think Jack Miller was quite keen because, you know, Jack is uh, is uh, <laughs> pretty good in those conditions. It's his home race. Um, probably thought he had a great chance of winning. Um, but Mike said that the conditions hadn't improved from when they red flagged it. And if they hadn't improved, then there's just no, no point in trying to even try to go out again. Um, and I think we did get to a stage in the afternoon where the wind was only going to get stronger, um, so yeah, the, I think they they they, they made a right decision uh, to to kind of call it off in the end. Um, but uh, yeah, yeah, interesting to to hear what he had to say. Um, and um, yeah, someone asked him whether you know the the recently formed riders' union was maybe going to impact um, the kind of decisions like this. And um, you know, Mike pointed to the safety commission being there which has been in place for years, which riders can attend every Friday night in a Grand Prix, give their feedback to, to the likes of Mike and uh, Carmelo Carlos Espaleta. Um, and he was just, you know, of the opinion, he's very hopeful that the Safety Commission does continue because he feels that that is probably a more effective way of hearing the rider's voice than a rider's union, where they basically will have one representative that will speak to race direction and the kind of higher-ups in Dorna. Silvan Gintoli, it looks like it's going to be he said in the safety commission they can hear every single opinion and it's not just from one person so um that was another interesting thing that uh, he commented on yeah i think the, the i mean the riders union is going to end up doing something different i mean the the, the the safety commission is going to because the other thing is the safety commission is is also it's held on the friday so that everyone has done a a, a couple of laps or, or a few laps around it they've had a day of practice they've seen the state of the track they know where the bumps are they can make comments about that particular track right now sort of thing so i think the the, the safety commission is always going to stay um the riders union is going to be much more about more general things such as 
rider contracts and all the rest of it um uh, you know bigger bigger questions you know more more general questions perhaps you'd you'd talk more about some you know the calendar or that sort of thing or schedule changes like we saw with the introduction of the sprint race uh but just to come back to celestino vietti's uh, crash what that reminded me of was um this is one of the reasons why we got rid of grass runoff because vietti was blown wide there was nothing he could do about it and he got he came off the curb and onto grass and it was when he hit the grass and especially sort of the grass and then the bit where the grass rejoined the asphalt for the uh, pit lane exit that was when he really got launched and he got launched uh, you know a, a, a long way it was great to see him actually walk away from it um so yeah the Grass edges can be a good deterrent for keeping people away, but the reason that they're not there is because when people do crash on them, it can be really, really nasty. Well, like anybody who managed to keep warm at Phillip Island yesterday, let's go on to our winners from the weekend. Uh, for me, very quickly, I'm just going to say Pramac. Uh, I think they're the first team on the MotoGP grid this year to have both of their riders take victory in 2023. So that's... Uh, a distinction of merit, you have to say. Um, certainly, maybe not for a satellite Ducati team. I mean, there is a certain amount of, as we said, expectation that comes from running that machinery. But um, it's a shame their PR and press people don't live up <laughs> to the same standard. Um, Neil, coming back to you, um, who's your winner from, from the Australian Grand Prix? I do have a winner, but I'm just going to have a, a kind of secondary winner, if I can just, if I may add. Go on then, as long as it doesn't involve a backflip. <laughs> Well, my, my my kind of secondary winner was uh, was Pedro Acosta because he managed to rescue a, a pretty dire situation as it was looking on the the sighting lap when he crashed. Tony Arbolino, an absolute master in these kind of wet conditions in in Moto Two, um, Acosta as it was managed to recover really well from the back of the grid, uh, finished ninth when or he was ninth when the red flags came out, um, and because fifty percent of the race wasn't completed, uh, they were handed half points. They couldn't restart, so they were handed half points. So therefore, um, you know, he potentially was going to lose big points to Arbolino. In the end, he just lost nine. Um, so still comes away from Phillip Island, a treacherous kind of weekend with a 56-point advantage. And incredibly, the first time that he has lost points to Arbolino since Le Mans back in May, which uh, really shows you that the uh, championship fight's only been going one way. But... Um, Estoril 2015 or 2010 vibes uh, for anyone? Um, uh, Mark Marquez crashing in that one to five year, you know, crashing on the sighting lap, taking the bike in to be fixed, and then getting in, uh, uh, coming out, and uh, I think did he did he win it that day? I can't remember, but get, he, he got yeah exactly. I mean, I don't think Acosta was going to win, but it, it was the same sort of thing, you know, like crash, uh, the, the panic, get into pit lane, let them fix the bike, jump on the bike, start from pit lane. Uh, or start from the back of the grid and then just make your way through the field. And I think he would have ended up a lot further forward had he, uh, uh, you know, had the, had the race gone full distance. But that's not actually my full winner. Sorry, Ad. Uh, oh, yeah, because it is actually. I have to say, Dijon Antonio, just because I probably the most surprising performance of the weekend. Um, I was expecting him to be fast and to kick on from his good ride in Indonesia, but to finish third for the reasons we previously mentioned, uh, I didn't see that coming. And just have to say, fair play to the lad. You're so shallow. 
You know, when he wins a Grand Prix or a title and they're there giving out the celebration T-shirts, I bet you'll be there at the front, you know, jumping up to catch it like it's some sort of baseball sailing out into the into the grandstand. At a, yeah. A match, you know, I, I can see it now. I'll be going full Wayne's World, you know, bowing down. We're not worthy right in front of him, k- kissing his feet. <laughs> exactly. You, 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 the phone will just be full of selfies of you and did you? <laughs> Dave, who was your um, French piano playing singing person symbol from Philip Island? Um, my winner from the Philip Island is the only winner of the weekend, which was the uh, the weather. Uh, the elements remain undefeated. You know, the the, the weather made everything uh, here. Yeah. It's an outdoor sport and you are subject to whatever the weather decides to do. And the weather decided that we were not going to race on Sunday. And so we didn't. Stay talking, Dave. Tell us who was your loser from the Australian Grand Prix. My uh, loser from the Grand Prix was Aprilia because Aprilia have been just, you know, they've been really strong. They've got a fast bike. They've got a bike that is really good, um, that turns really, really well. Um, But this track, they just could not get to grips with. Um, I can't remember. I think it was Aleish saying, you know, he was losing 0.4 through the last two corners um, uh, during practice. He was embarrassed. Yeah, exactly. He was embarrassed. They were both, um, even though in the end, uh, like uh, I think they both sort of got top 10-ish finishes. I I, I don't have the result uh, in front of me. But you were expecting, like last year, you know, Aleish was right there at the front all the way to, uh, to the end. I think Maverick um, uh, was was pretty strong as well. So it's, I really thought that Aprilia were going to be strong this weekend and they just, they could not get any drive. They could not get on with the, well, with the track and you wonder, you know, why not what has gone wrong there? Yeah, I found it, was, I found it quite baffling listening to, to Maverick on Saturday say, uh, oh, you know, I didn't expect to be strong here. And uh, on Friday, he was like, yeah, I'm one of the strongest guys along with the KTMs and uh, and Martin. It's like, really, Maverick? We were all here yesterday. We did all hear what you said. <laughs> well, didn't um, Ralph Fernandez think he might be in for a shot at the podium on Thursday? I don't think that one worked out too well either. Exactly. Uh, for me, when it comes to um the loser from the weekend it's not really a loser in in the the sort of traditional sense but i have a lot of sympathy for jack miller um again as i mentioned uh he's a fantastic ambassador not only for the sport um but i also think for his country for you know whatever kind of brand he's wearing um he did he went above and beyond in a promotional sense uh for the grand prix this weekend and i felt that he was pretty disappointed on saturday uh finishing 7th it just seemed to sum up his situation where he's fast, but not quite fast enough with the KTM. There's some final click that they're missing. And I think he found it last year at the Barcelona test with Ducati and then went on that impressive second half of the season run where he was competitive and fighting for victories and podiums all the way. Um, together with his crew at, at KTM, they need that final click and they will have another year to do it. But uh, yeah, it was just a little... Um, Feel a little sorry for Jack, and also in some of the social media videos from KTM, you know, he just had this uh, slightly disappointed air that everything didn't go so well for him at the Grand Prix. But um, overall, I think you have to classify KTM as winners because they were not competitive in Phillip Island in 2022, and this this time they were. Uh, Binder, I mean, Martin, as you said, Neil had an amazing um, pole position lap, four tenths quicker than than Brad Binder. But Binder being in, I think, on the third row for only the third time in MotoGP, first um, row P two. And then being competitive, 
yet first row yet um being able to sort of you know chase martin as well was uh you know impressive stuff so a bit of a mixed uh, loser package there um neil finish things off for us um who was your loser well um Again, I'm going to combine uh, two things together. Uh, I'm just going to say the <laughs> Japanese manufacturers because I think it sort of went under the radar that the fastest Japanese rider in the race or rider riding a Japanese machine, I should say, was Fabio Quartararo in 14th, um, which was just uh, awful. And both Yamaha and Honda suffered diabolical races. I mean, Mar- Marquez uh, selected the soft rear tire along with Martin and Paul Espargaro. He went for a total gamble hoped that the race would be a lot slower than it was so he could sort of save the tyre but in the end it didn't pay off and he slipped on the order to 15th at the end and um, he said with the medium he would have only finished 10th or 11th so he thought it was a gamble worth taking um, and uh, yeah I mean the Hondas were nowhere s- suffering with uh, with traction issues really bad for them accelerating when they're on the side of the tyre and Yamaha was just nowhere all weekend I mean you combine um, you know, Honda and Yamaha's wins at this track in the MotoGP era, and they come to 14. I mean, uh, you know, the Yamaha or the Honda has been the, the bike to be on at this track in, in years gone by. And uh, this year, they were just completely left for dead. Um, Quartararo was saying it wasn't just uh, it wasn't just the traction. It was the, the kind of nervousness of the bike. Uh, the turning is completely gone. Um, and he's going through this kind of real schizophrenic spell where it's either a total disaster like we saw at Mategi or here, or he's competitive like in India um, and uh, Indonesia. Um, and he also made a comment, I think, on Saturday saying that we're 15, Yamaha's 15 winters away from getting back to, you know, top competitive level, which didn't <laughs> really bode well for Lynn Jarvis and co who really want to... Um, uh, sign Fabio up for you know a, a long, long, long-term deal beyond 2024. So, yeah, just a horrible weekend for the the Japanese manufacturers. Yeah, it's also interesting that where Yamaha has been good has been at the tracks where they have a special casing, and we're going to Buriram next, where you know again we have these special tires, uh, which which really seem to work, and just. A word about the race. It was the fastest race since 2015, and it was about 10 seconds faster than most of the other races during the during the Michelin area. Uh, so, yeah, it really was a fast race. There you go, bringing up 2015 again. Just can't help yourself. <laughs> <laughs> you guys forgot to hashtag it. Uh, I guess, yeah. That's well, really it's been a, it's been a while. It's been a few. It's been at least sort of three podcasts since we mentioned 2015. That's a great stat, though, Dave. I mean, the, the pace of the race, of course, and um, you know how generally tire wear in Phillip Island and in the circuits to come as well, uh, a critical factor when it comes to the result sheets. Thanks to all the new Patreon followers who joined up this week. Uh, we hope you like the Paddock Note shows because they're coming thick and fast now. Uh, remember to message us on that platform or through X with any questions or comments. If you can give this podcast a follow, a like, or a review whenever you're listening to it, then that would be most helpful. Thanks to Renthal.com for helping make all this happen and for allowing us to book planes, hotels, and cars to get to events and give you our news and views from the sides of the track. Until Thailand then, thanks for listening. 